0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, every so often in this program, we get so backed up in materials we'd like to talk about that we just have to forsake guests, just dive into that pile, and uh, discuss these many items. Today will be one of those semi-regular shows where we devote the entire program to doing just that. Let us start out with On This Date in History, which is the way we traditionally open up Radio Parallax every week. And with our date today being the 16th of July, we would note that it was on July 16th in the year 622 that the Islamic era began with the flight of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. Muhammad's religious leadership was soon enhanced by his political leadership. In fact, when Michael Hart got around to writing the book, The 100 Most Influential Persons in History, he named Muhammad first and foremost on that list because rather uniquely he was history's only example of someone who was a smashing success in the religious field and a smashing success in the political field. And speaking of religion and politics, it was on July 16th in the year 1429 that Joan d'Arc, often misrepresented as Joan of Arc, managed to go from being a religious zealot to the leader of French armies. Unlike Mohammed, however, she did not prevail. And it was in July 16th in the year 1861 that the Battle of Bull Run took place, the first major skirmish in the American Civil War. It was a rout for Union forces, although the reporters on the scene apparently reported as a great Union victory. I know this because I finally got around to reading The First Casualty by Philip Knightley, subtitled From the Crimea to Vietnam, the War Correspondent as Hero, Propagandist, and Mythmaker. I knew this was a great book, and I'm not sure when I actually bought my copy of this, but it's been sitting on the shelf, I think, for a couple decades, and I'm glad to be reading it because it allows me to share this little tidbit regarding war reporting in the Civil War. I think I'll quote from Knightley. Despite the opportunities that this great watershed in history offered correspondence, the conclusion must be that they measured up poorly to the task. Like many other aspects of the Civil War, its war correspondents have been romanticized into legend. The legend conveniently overlooks the fact that the majority of the northern correspondents were ignorant, dishonest, and unethical. The dispatches they wrote were frequently inaccurate, often invented, partisan, and inflammatory. Mr. Knightley wrote those words in 1975, so he didn't get a chance to see how that tradition has continued today with Fox News. And finally, it was on July 16th in 1945 that the Trinity test of the atomic bomb took place in New Mexico. As you may or may not know, the Manhattan Project built two different types of bombs. Scientists were so certain that the bomb composed of uranium would work, they didn't bother testing it first time it got tested, as it were, was when it was dropped on Hiroshima. It was the plutonium bomb they had some doubts about and felt they needed to actually test it in New Mexico before dropping it on Nagasaki. Our quote of the day comes from one of the founders of the Confederacy, oddly enough. In this case, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens, who said, Our new government is founded upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. A quote that might well be cited when these knuckleheads talk about the Confederate flag being just a matter of tradition. You know, kind of like a Christmas tree. And please allow me a slight digression, dear listener, into some follow-up on the chat we had a few weeks back with Charles Mann, the author of 1493. In his discussion of goings-on down in South America, he mentioned that there were some resettled Confederates in Brazil. And indeed, It's been noted that despite the controversy raging in the U.S. over the Confederate flag, the rebel banner is still flying in a tiny Brazilian town settled by white settlers after the Civil War. In the late 1860s, 10,000 Southerners were given cheap land in Santa Barbara de Este by the Emperor Dom Pedro II, who hoped they would bring knowledge of cotton farming. Over the years, those Southerners intermarried with indigenous Brazilians and the descendants of African slaves. Now the people who celebrate their heritage at a yearly confederate folk festival sport a range of skin tones. Said festival organizer João Leopoldo Padovesi. The flag is just a piece of history. For us in Brazil, it has no political meaning at all. Our quip of the day comes from a review of the recently released, and I guess uh, restored, The Third Man by Orson Welles. I gather it's getting a limited theatrical release at the moment, and I do hope to take it in 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 a theater somewhere. It apparently was the toast of Khan. But I have to admire this little quip from Kenneth Turan's uh, review of of the restored version of The Third Man. He writes, Into the third man's cesspool of casual amorality comes Holly Martins, Joseph Cotton, never better, a bumbling, self-righteous, and therefore dangerous American. Graham Greene, who wrote the screenplay, Thought there was no other kind. And we have to agree, we're huge fans of Graham Greene's writing, but uh, he didn't think too highly of uh, of uh, Americans, especially American intelligence operatives. Some years back, Mr. Merlin and I uh, talked about seeing the movie, The Remake, the excellent remake of Graham Greene's The Quiet American. Brendan Fraser and uh, Michael Caine are excellent in that. They really did the book justice, and if you've never seen it to a listener, I... I highly recommend that you check it out. Our stat of the day, and I think we made uh, mention of this on previous shows, but it's worth making it our stat of the day today. It's known that lightly regulated hedge funds failed in 2010 to outearn ordinary stock index funds following the S&P 500, When you just basically buy an index fund, it does what the market does. Well, these so-called financial geniuses that run hedge funds underperformed the S&P 500 index funds, yet The top 25 fund managers earned collectively $11.6 billion in fees and salaries. The best-paid hedge fund manager earned $1.3 billion, with a B, which is more than 48 times what the highest-paid Major League Baseball player earned. This might be a really good time to to revisit Babe Ruth's famous quote. Somebody pointed out to him once that he made more money than President Herbert Hoover. Responded Ruth, yeah, but I had a better year. All right, and for our joke of the day, we're going to use one that we used, I don't know, about 10 years ago. It's time we recycled it. The joke goes as follows. In an Italian neighborhood, a man walks into a bar with his dog. He said to the bartender, if you'll give me a drink, I'll have this dog talk. The big Italian bartender looked at him completely skeptical, but said, okay, I give you a drink. After that, this dog, she better talk. Guy said deal and slammed back a gin and tonic. At which point, the bartender looked at him like, well. Okay, said the man, turning to the dog. Fido, what's sandpaper feel like? Roof, said the dog. Bartender casts him a look. No, no, he says, wait, wait, wait. Fido, what's over your head? Roof, said the dog. The bartender starts coming around from the bar, heading toward the guy. The guy goes, No, wait, j- just a minute here. Fido, who was baseball's greatest hitter? Roof, says the dog. Bartender opens up the back door to the bar, throws the guy out into the alley, grabs the dog, tosses him, flings him in the air. The dog spins around, lands on top of the guy, and the door gets slammed. There's a brief pause. The dog gets up, shakes himself a little bit, turns to the guy and says, I guess I should have said DiMaggio. All right, then on that note, I think we'll move into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for Netflix, which has announced that its U.S. audience is on pace to surpass those of ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC by 2016. This is according to an analysis by FBR Capital Markets. Netflix users streamed about two hours per day in early 2015, already comparable to ABC's and NBC's Nielsen ratings. Holy cow. And contrary to the advice given in that classic movie, The Graduate, it was a bad week last week for plastic. With the news that iconic 20th century plastic objects are beginning to degrade. So, London's Victoria and Albert Museum is working with researchers to find ways to conserve plastic items in its collection, including an inflatable chair and a 1960s PVC dress. Just one word, Benjamin. Plastics. Mm Plastics. And it was a bad week last week for rudimentary sterilization procedures with the news that Egypt has the largest proportion of hepatitis C viral infections in the world, with at least one in 10 Egyptians aged 15 to 59 infected with the blood-borne virus. 80% of new infections, you'll be sad to hear, occur in Egypt's hospitals and clinics owing to inadequate sterilization of equipment and unsafe medical and dental practices. So there you have it. Don't get your teeth worked on while you're visiting the Luxor Temple complex. And it was surely a bad and ugly week for John Q. Public. With the news last week that Wall Street powerhouse Goldman Sachs is looking for Main Street clients, according to Michael Corkery and Nathaniel Popper writing in the New York Times. After 146 years of building a reputation serving the powerful and the privileged, the financial services firm plans to offer consumer loans to ordinary Americans via an online lending unit. Although Goldman requires a minimum balance of $10 million to become one of its private wealth clients, its new unit will offer consumer loans of $15,000 to $20,000. Radio Parallax is not optimistic about how this is going to turn out. All right. Let's do a little bit of follow-up. We had a wonderful chat on last week's program with Dr. Eldridge Morris of UC Davis's geology department. We briefly touched upon something which uh, which I find very interesting it is that our sister planet Venus is very different from us in so many ways, even though we're almost the same mass and we're virtually the same exact size. Dr. Morris thinks that Venus may represent a very early Earth in terms of its geologic structure. Something we hope we will. Uh, Talk to them about more in the future. But regarding Venus, it may be giving up some of its mysteries. Researchers have looked at the planet and found oozing volcanoes, a discovery that may help solve the planet's deepest geological riddle. Past observations revealed that Venus's surface is new, at least in geologic terms, meaning like it's 500 million years old, even though it dates back four and a half billion years, just like we do. Venus doesn't sport many craters, scientists think, because it's been paved over by upwelling lava within the last billion or so years. There have been hints of more recent volcanism too, but no solid evidence of fresh lava until now. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Germany have dug through data from the European Space Agency's Venus Express probe, which orbited the planet from 2006 to 2014. They found short-lived hot patches they attribute to lava lakes bubbling up along a rift. So maybe Venus is starting to form plates like we have here on Earth. Interesting stuff. Something we've not as yet been able to get on Radio Parallax is Michael Brown of Caltech. He is the person more responsible than anyone else for Pluto being demoted to a dwarf planet. And oh yes, we are keen to talk about the exciting discoveries coming our way from Pluto through the New Horizons mission, but unfortunately we're going to have to let that one go for a week and see what we can sort out from the wealth of data that has plopped in our lap. So speaking of the edge of the solar system and I guess we are, a recent study of um, the planetoid or Kuiper Belt object Sedna indicates that perhaps, perhaps 4 billion years ago, our sun stole it and other frozen mini planets from a passing star. Sedna has a very, very elongated orbit which has been very mysterious to scientists ever since it was discovered. One idea was that that it and a dozen other similar objects were jolted out of place by a passing star. Now, Lucille Juklova of Leiden University in the Netherlands and her colleagues have simulated over 10,000 possible encounters between the sun and such a star. They conclude that the passing star was not a troublemaker, but a victim. Sedna and its siblings were actually stolen from it when it ventured too close to our sun. Of course, this is all based upon computer simulations and, you know, as they say, garbage in, garbage out. But, yeah, you know, maybe it's so, and they'll have to keep working with the data. I know that uh, this orbit is very mysterious. And we continue our search also for someone from the B612 Foundation of Mill Valley, perhaps either astronaut, former astronaut Ed Liu, or former astronaut Rusty Schweikert, to come in and talk about their efforts to locate all of the asteroids which might smack us here on Earth and cause a great deal of grief. Asteroid Day was held uh, last week, apparently a success in raising people's awareness of this issue. Well, we're going to keep pursuing that and see if we can't talk about this highly intriguing idea. And I mentioned Christmas a moment ago, uh, symbols of Christmas, the familiar Christmas tree. Here's an item from Mental Floss that uh, surprises me, and something we should give another look at in an era where we're trying to, uh, you know, save the Earth. Permanent floss, according to the 1950s, the future was bright and made of aluminum. The cheap, lightweight metal found its way into everything. Airplanes, cars, tables, kitchen bakeware, and finally, by 1959, fake Christmas trees. Over the next 10 years, fake tree salesmen moved more than a million silver Evergleam trees. Sales only started to dip when manufacturers met an unexpected foe, Charlie Brown. Turns out on December 9, 1965, and I believe I was watching that night, nearly half of all the evening's TV viewers turned into a Charlie Brown Christmas, which meant that almost 15 and a half million people watched Charlie and Linus mock a fake metal tree and opt for a scrawny wooden one instead. It was a PR nightmare. Suddenly, aluminum trees had become a symbol of holiday commercialization gone overboard. By the early 1970s, the evergreen craze was dead. Of course, it's difficult to lay all the blame on the Peanuts gang, but aluminum lovers say Snoopy sure didn't help. All right, here's another item from Mental Floss I think that's uh, worthy of mention. I'm just going to read the little piece they had here about tequila. Long before it became a staple in bars around the world, the agave plant held a variety of odd jobs in pre-Columbian Mexico, Indigenous people planted the perennial as a food, a hedge, and a source of fibers, even using the agave spines as needles. But the versatile plant's tastiest use involved letting its juices ferment into an alcoholic beverage called pulque, used in religious rituals. European colonists helped secularize the tipple by distilling the pulque into a potent liquor called mezcal. As mezcal became popular, artisans from the town of Tequila in the state of Jalisco began crafting terrific examples from the blue agave plant that sprouted from the region's volcanic soils. Before long, colonists and natives alike were enjoying vino mezcal de tequila, or more simply, tequila. Yes, apparently just as cognac is a subset of brandy, tequila is technically a type of mezcal. The rest of the world began to take notice. Americans developed a taste for the spirit when World War II stalled domestic distillation and European imports. And tequila's been on the rise ever since. While bottom-shelf tequilas, whose recipes include just 51% agave and cheap sugars acting as filler, have earned a reputation as hangover fuel, Higher quality 100% agave tequilas are gaining a following. Note to the magazine, when sipped neat or over ice, they marry the bold flavors you'd expect from tequila with a complexity you'd never dream of in a well margarita. You think tequila manufacturers spurred them on to write that copy? I don't know. I got my suspicions. And Let's compliment that little item with, with a beast from New Scientist magazine. Which is, human beings aren't the only primates to knock down a drink or two to unwind or catch a buzz, according to the BBC.com. Wild chimps in West Africa often get tipsy by visiting a natural bar in the jungle. The chimps have learned to drink the fermented sap produced by raffia palm trees, which contain about 3-7% to alcohol, roughly equivalent to a beer. Scientists observed 27 chimps from 1995-2012 to and found half of the animals sipped the alcoholic sap. They soaked it up with chewed leaves and squeezed it into their mouths. Overall, there were 51 drinking events observed and 20 group sessions. Some of the chimps drank enough, the equivalent of three pints of beer, to show visible signs of drunkenness, such as walking unsteadily and falling into sudden slumber. On one occasion, said study leader Kimberly Hawkins, one male refused to get into his nest at the chimps' usual bedtime and spent an hour swinging from tree to tree in an agitated manner. So, what you want? I want bourbon, I want Scotch, I want beer. Well, I ain't seen my baby since I don't know when. I've been drinking bourbon whiskey, Scotch and gin. Gonna get high, man, I'm gonna get loose. Need me a triple shot of that juice. This might be a great time to take a break. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to. Radio parallax. One beer, one bourbon, one snack, one beer. But I'm sitting now.